You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to episode 110 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Tony Lopes. This week's guest is a venture capitalist, entrepreneur, and tech founder who works with businesses of all sizes to help execute strategies to turn their dreams into reality. Courtney Lawless currently serves as the co-host of the Amazon Prime show Wolfpack, which premiered in January of 2021, where she engages with startups to help them accelerate their growth to actualize their potential. In addition to investing and advising, Courtney also co-owns and manages a full-stack software development company called Moxie Hub, where she builds sophisticated, high-demand tech solutions with her expert team. Courtney is here with us today to discuss the best practices that you should employ into your business if you're considering venture capital investment. And of course, we'll also talk about the show Wolfpack. Here are the self-made strategies of Courtney Lawless. Thanks for joining us. This is super cool. So let's kind of start from whatever part of your origin story you'd prefer to start from. Like I said, 18 years of experience, pretty, pretty cool. How did you get into private equity and venture capital deals? By accident. (laughs) (laughs) That's how the best stories start, right? Accidentally, I just kind of stumbled into this thing. Yeah, accidentally, I fell into it. Um, I actually graduated with an accounting degree and thought um, that's what I was going to do. And then I started working in public accounting and thought, if this is what I have to do, (laughs) not going to work. Um, so I was connected by a colleague to, um, someone who ran a hedge fund and, you know, this is a different type of accounting. This is totally different animal. Let's, let's see how you like this. And I mean, I took to it like, you know, a fish in water and it was just more that I wanted to learn and, and more that I wanted to do. So, you know, I started, um, at a hedge fund on wall street in the early two thousands And, um, I could start to see the writing on the wall circa 2008. So I left and actually went, um, to a boutique firm that was a placement agent. So we really did everything soup to nuts from raising capital to marketing, to help structuring deals for mid-size real estate, private equity, and venture funds. So that's really where I cut my teeth in getting a really large exposure to all different types of funds, industries, et cetera. So that was a roundabout way of, of how I kind of fell into it. But, um, you know, once I did, I never looked back. Yeah, well, it's such an exciting version of that, right? Finance and accounting is certainly a key element in all of this. You really need solid books and records when you're presenting to a VC, especially with large amounts of money. I mean, you've helped to raise over $5 billion in capital commitments, and that's just massive, right? But these deals tend to be kind of big. So let's talk about the best practices to you when you're looking at a deal when you're looking at a potential company to invest in, what are some of the things that you need to see in order to even be slightly interested in engaging beyond that initial commitment? 
So I think there's a few things. I don't think there's any secret sauce, but there's definitely some, um, you know, interconnections between pieces. So one, I look at the founders first and foremost, and what have they done? Do they, do they really have any of the skills necessary to do this or did they just have a good idea and, you know, or are trying to think that they can pull this off? Um, you know, somebody seasoned at least in their industry is, is helpful. Um, then I like to go right to the numbers. So having put together a really good financial model by an expert is helpful. And I think that does two things. One, it's great for any investor or VC, but two, it also level sets the expectations of the founders. I know putting these together are a little like the proverbial pulling a rabbit out of a hat, but they have to be based in reality. There has to be research. There has to be precedent to support those numbers. So I hear VCs, um, you know, other VCs complain about this as well. And it's, you're not trying to make the numbers work for us. The numbers have to work and be supported in the market. So, you know, when, when they're putting these together, I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make is making them work. And, you know, oh yeah, the valuation on this company is, you know, five to $10 million because that is the average that they Googled. So now they're trying to put that onto their, uh, you know, their solution or their product or whatever it is that, you know, they're trying to bring to market and it doesn't work. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's a big piece. The next piece that I look at is the market. And the biggest question for me is, does this solve a problem? And does this problem need to be solved? Because there's some problems out there that really don't need to be solved and there's not going to be a market for the solution. And if you're trying to wrap a problem around a solution, you've already started behind the eight ball. Yeah, that's great advice, I think, with, you know, first of all, going back to what you were saying with looking at the numbers and making sure that it's not just numbers that were sort of inflated by the group coming to you looking for investment, right? That's that makes sense. I like sort of there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it it makes total sense that you need to have numbers that are realistic. And all of the all three elements were looking at sort of the fit, the fit of the founders to the business itself, the fit of the numbers to the numbers in the market. Do they match up? And then the looking at the market itself, the big picture, if you will, the forest for the trees. So what what do you typically do if you run into an organization that could be a great idea, but they're missing one of these elements? So it depends on how far off they're missing the elements um, and, you know, what the potential size of the opportunity is, because, you know, back to the numbers, the numbers can't be inflated and there has to be some type of reasonable return that, you know, I can expect to make on this. So. If the founders are a problem, but they are willing to take direction and advice and realize that um, they're going to need help to get there, that's an easy fix. If they're not, it's 
it can be painful. You know, as you saw in, in Wolfpack, one of my biggest concerns was when we said, Hey, Mike, we need to rebrand you. We, you know, sometimes that doesn't go over well. Um, but that's what you need. So if you have people who are willing to, as you say, see the, you know, the forest through the trees and really understand that they need to get out of their own way, that's something that's, that's workable. Um, if we find that the numbers aren't there and aren't working, that's a non-starter. So if, you know, we're taking a look through and I can see that the numbers are really inflated. I'm not even going to go through it because I have a feeling that somewhere along the way, someone has told them what the actual numbers are. Um, and it's not worth my time to sit and try to build a model to actually get to, no, this isn't going to work. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a few things there. I mean, if they're off by a little bit or we think we can work it really in, in this space that I've become accustomed to, which is kind of this death valley curve of, you know, right after they've gotten some seed and some angel money, but, you know, really before they go to big series rounds, um, they need a lot of extra help. They need a lot of extra hands and they need a lot of nurturing and mentorship. So if the three elements are there, meaning that you can work with the founders, the numbers are solid enough. Uh, it's still a risk. Um, and, and the solution makes sense, then, you know, it's definitely a go to do more diligence and dig in deeply. Bring us up to speed to how you got involved in Moxie Hub. So you're the co-owner and COO of Moxie Hub. How yes. did that opportunity come about and why did you decide to get involved with Moxie Hub? Yeah. So, um, Moxie Hub is a full stack, uh, software and app development firm based out of Boston. Um, my partner, Ivan Riley in that was also my partner in a venture fund, um, that I started and we had gotten introduced, um, a couple years ago and started working, um, together investing. So we were in investing and advising startups, him on the tech side and me on the finance side. Um, and it really was a great marrying of skill sets. Um, you know, well-versed in being able to vet out tech to help build solutions. Um, so that really started to um, meld together well. And at the same time, he was growing his software firm. So one of my areas of expertise uh, within my fund was actually helping to grow and scale companies. So I'm doing this for everyone else. So let's, let's do it for you. So came into Moxie um, as a partner and to really help him with operations and to kind of grow and scale our verticals there. So there we focus in two segments, which are building our own solutions and then also on services. So custom tech solutions for other companies. Awesome. So talk about that a little bit. When you're working with a company like Moxie Hub, Without giving away sort of the back end secret sauce, what was it that you did to help to grow and scale? Because I think often people hear about growing or scaling and scalability and all these buzz terms in today's society, but the practical application, the real world, you know, this is how you do that. What, what did you do and what are some of the lessons that you learned along the way? 
So a lot of lessons, you know, when you have um, any founder who hasn't had a business before, you know, they try to do everything themselves. And for a while it's necessary. Um, but knowing the right inflection points that you need to bring someone in, you need to have processes and procedures, you need to have a budget, you need to have a plan. Um, and people no, I have a plan. We're going to grow or we're going to, you know, we're going to hit this in sales targets. And, and this is, you know, we're going to build solutions for biotech or pharma. Um, that's, awesome. And you need to have a vision and you need to have a plan. Um, but then it's how you get there and it's building out an org chart. It's making sure that there's accountability and that each person that you're bringing in is, is bringing a return back to you. So there's value. Um, where are the gaps? Where are the gaps, not only in the company, in the process, but then in, in what you're building or what your services are. So as you start to really hone in on that, find those, then it's starting to fill those and then repeating that process. So that's what we started to do. Uh, we started bringing in, you know, project managers and product owners and, you know, CIOs and really starting to find great people to let my partner start being an actual CEO um, and, and then starting to facilitate those, um, roles down to where they belong. And then you start to find that the processes all run smoothly, the projects run smoothly. And, you know, then as those things start to happen, building out sales teams, now you're starting to get consistent projects, consistent revenue, and then you just really repeat the process. Um, and then depending, you know, if you're moving into other verticals, then, you know, another plan, another budget, et cetera. Awesome. So going sort of through this iterative process where you're kind of, you, you sort of finish a cycle and then recycle back to the beginning and kind of start that process over to kind of back check and make sure that things are running smoothly. And that's where you find your pivot points, so to speak. Yeah, especially in a small company, I think it's a really good thing to do. It's an iterative process and, you know, you're not going to grow and scale to a $25 million company overnight. Um, you know, and then also looking in how big you want to be, the market that you're in, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces to that. This, you know, was just specific to um our our tech company. So let me ask you this, your um, CEO partner, Ivan, he was essentially when you came to the organization, kind of working on his own, all hands on deck, really doing a lot of roles that he shouldn't have been doing as CEO. How do you take someone like that? Because I think this is a legitimate practical problem that a lot of owner founders and CEOs, presidents, whatever you want to call them, you know, they wear all of those hats and it's then really hard for them to break away from that and say, I have to trust somebody else to go and crush it in this space. But, you know, there's always that thing in the back of my mind. I've said this to friends. My wife's an entrepreneur as well. So I've said it to her often. You know, Google runs very, very well. Amazon runs very, very well. And it's not Jeff Bezos doing literally everything from order fulfillment to coding to, you know, all of those things. So how do you do that? How do you take a CEO who's ingrained in the system and sort of help them to pull back and let go of things? So it's a slow process. It's not, you know, something that that goes overnight. Um, 
you know, there, there have to be a few things. One, it's a lot of trust. There has to be a lot of trust there with Ivan and I, it was much easier because we had a track record of working together. He had seen what I was doing with other companies. So it was very seamless when I transitioned, um, into Moxie. Um, so for that is a little bit of an anomaly, um, in, okay, here's what you're doing. Here's what I'm doing. And the running joke is that I actually run the company. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, he will, he will admit that, um, as well. However, in other companies, I can tell you that it's been knocked down, drag out brawls. I've had to remove CEOs from their position. And I can tell you that that does not go over well. Um, you know, the proof becomes in the pudding, so to speak, when you can finally claw them away from it and show them now it's growing. So you're holding on to this so tight, you have no expertise in this. You know, I try to liken things back to would you cut your own hair? I mean, really, you know, especially as a woman, I'm, I'm not going to attempt that, you know, I, I go to a salon or, you know, would you go out and fix your own car if you don't have any expertise in that? So why would you think that you can do this? And, you know, I, I kind of get a, a lot of slack. Well, this is my baby. I get it. But do you not have those feelings towards other things as well? And when you put them in the hands of a professional or you bring someone in that can do it, you see the value. And then you see you've, you have time to start to, to tick off the boxes of all the other things that need to get done. And then you start to see the growth. So it's challenging. It is so challenging. Um, but I understand why you know, having been an entrepreneur myself, um, and there's a control thing there, but, you know, after you've done it so many times, you start to see delegating becomes a really powerful tool. It's, it's not a weakness. It actually makes you better. Yeah. That, that ability actually to say to your team or to say to your colleagues or your other stakeholders, I need help. These are the areas that I need help in are the sort of beginning of the growth process to really be able to grow an organization. It's almost impossible to do it unless you do that, right? They are. And, you know, the other part of this too, that, you know, credit where credit's due, you know, with my partner, Ivan, I don't know what I don't know. So not always knowing that you need help. And, you know, I would show him something and his mind would be blown and go, I had no idea. I literally had no idea that it should be like this or we should be doing this. So that's the other piece of it that becomes, you know, difficult. And like I said, in that partnership, it it was, it was never difficult, but I've had partnerships where it becomes very difficult because even when you're showing a bolus of data of this is how this should be, or this should actually look or run like this, they don't want to hear it because it's not their idea or that's not what they think should happen. Right. Yeah. That's such a tough thing, right? These are human dynamics, especially when you're talking about a CEO founder 
There are usually a lot of emotions involved, as you pointed out. And it's such a difficult thing to kind of just be able to say, look, you got to you have to let it go. And if it comes back to you, maybe it's yours, but you have to let it go and see if it'll grow on its own. Right. Otherwise, it won't. So the psychology behind it all actually fascinates me. And I've learned to try to take um, my favorite movie is Inception. One of my favorite movies. I love that movie myself, actually. Really, really love that movie. Yeah. So I've learned to try to take that approach of where you start to plant the seed. And then when they think it's their idea, it becomes so much easier. So as I've, I've grown in my own career, instead of kind of digging my heels in and, you know, you're wrong, this is how this should be. I've learned how to start to make people accept my ideas as their, as their own. And it works so much better that way. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, for me, it doesn't matter how we get there. It's that we end up getting there. Right, exactly. And that's my philosophy as well. If it's working and if we get to our goal, don't ask questions. It doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, that's awesome. All right. So now let's talk about Wolfpack a little bit. How did this opportunity come up for you to be one of the wolves on Wolfpack? And everyone who's listening to this, please go to Amazon Prime, look up Wolfpack PAC. It's a Philly based entrepreneurial show, essentially a show where you work with entrepreneurs as a group. There's a variety of wolves. There's the variety of wolves, the professor wolf. You are the venture wolf, right? If I'm not mistaken, uh, there's the branding wolf and, uh, and, and a few others. What was the other wolf? What's, um, so there's the numbers, um, there's an entrepreneur, there's, there's a few, we have, we have a few wolves. That, it's that it's the wolf pack. That's the way it works. <laughs> you, you join the pack and they help you where you need the help. And I think it's really interesting because it's kind of every episode's kind of a case study. Of course, you had Michael Peacock on uh, episode one of Wolfpack, and I won't spoil what happens in that episode for anyone who's listening. Go check it out. But Michael was actually a prior guest of this show way back on episode 66. So it's cool to see Michael in the limelight, him and Tony Luke, also another former guest and a, a very popular Philadelphia name. But Going back to you, how did you become a part of the Wolfpack? So I became a part of the Wolfpack through um, a mutual contact of myself and the founder of the show, Kent Griswold. Um, so there was another person who was slated to be on the show, but was not able to. However, they loved my venture background so much that, um, you know, we did actually a couple of uh, phone interviews, looked at my resume and they said, you're in. And I said, okay, great. And didn't really think about what that actually meant until um, <laughs> I, I showed up on set. Um, but you know, the premise of the show actually was really what got me excited, you know, spending my days working with founders, um, and just trying to educate people on the process because it's so different than, you know, a shark tank or, you know, these pitch competitions that people go into. Um, and that was Kent's vision was to educate people and to really show the growth and, and what's needed to go into an investment. And it's not just money. There's so many other pieces that have to come together. So it's, you know, network, it's 
industry expertise. It's, it's all of these things coming together, which is why there's five of us. Um, we collectively come together to decide that we're going to invest, pull our resources and really help them. And, you know, we coming from different backgrounds, that's really valuable to people like, uh, Mike and, you know, his, his gourmet meat pies, which was such a fun, that was, that was a really fun episode to shoot. And, and he was great. Tony Luke was in that episode as well. Um, Tony has been an amazing mentor for, for Mike and, uh, he's doing some pretty great things now. Yeah, Mike is a a good friend of the show. I actually speak with him on a regular basis and such a great guy. It was cool to see this kind of evolve because when we recorded episode 66 of this podcast, that was back in April of 2020 that the episode aired. And I remember Mike talking to me. He couldn't tell me what the outcome of the episode was. Obviously, he was under agreement, but he uh, was so excited about being a part of the Wolfpack experience and was just championing it. Uh, uh, championing your cause throughout the process. And it was so cool to kind of see that to come to fruition. So now uh, when you get involved in a project like this, for those who are listening that don't know about it, how did the relationship with the Eagles evolve? How did the relationship with Amazon uh, come to be? How did all of those choices get made? So Kent's childhood friend is longtime uh, comedian Craig Shoemaker, who is also out of Philly. Um, he's you know based in LA. Um, the two paired up to really take this idea and show to the next level. So Kent had kind of the business expertise, and Craig, you know, with the show business and to make it human and fun. Um, and it was through Craig's contacts at the Eagles that they really, you know, loved what we were doing. Um, you know, one of the biggest pieces of this are the charitable elements of it, both on the wolf side and the startups. So, you know, it was something that the Eagles really felt strongly about. So that was a surreal experience was filming at the link and, being on the field, um, you know, being in the locker room with the trophy. That was, that was really cool. Having some former Eagles on the show. So yeah, that, that became really neat. Um, and then you realize, you know, Philly is such a small place and it's, you know, one degree of separation, you know, Tony Luke, who works on another project with Craig, brought in, um, you know, Mike Peacock and, you know, it just kind of rolled down from there. So it became very family oriented very quickly. Cool. And you obviously had to struggle with COVID. You started shooting roughly in February of 2020 and boom, you know, you, you get 10 shoot days in and production shut down, which is part of the reason that there's only four episodes in season one. Uh, and now looking towards season two, we're looking at shooting another eight episodes potentially for that, uh, starting in 2021. And what can we expect from the upcoming season two? So expect the same format, meaning I, I like how you, you know, kind of break down each one as a case study because, you know, we follow through the entire episode with one company, um, you know, look for, a little more diversity as well, you know, with different industries, different products, um, but all, you know, local to the Philly market and area. Um, and, 
you know, I think you'll, I think it'll be interesting. I think we'll, you know, touch on a few things that have happened um, since COVID with some of our previous companies. Um, And really, you know, we also, we have a podcast. So every week we've been, you know, kind of debriefing on the episodes and, you know, what's happened. Now, I think one of the biggest things will be helping people navigate COVID and what that means for their business now. And, you know, no one saw this black swan descending upon us. So what happens, um, you know, what we thought were worst case scenarios weren't even close to worst case scenarios. So now, you know, that is something else that we all need to consider. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing that you bring up in that now we've all had to sort of adapt. And and at this point, you know, we're almost a year into this and learning to adapt from a business perspective, from an individual perspective, being more sensitive to each other's mental health and emotional boundaries, um, I, I think adds an interesting dynamic, especially to a show like Wolfpack, where you're seeing these founders and organizations having to deal with all of these real world issues rather than just sort of the Hollywood or Instagram version of what a business might look like on the, on its face. Yeah. You know, I think we're going to get into a little less of the glossy images and, you know, a little more of real life. Um, you know, when I look at that snapshot, I mean, and it really was timely in ways because we finished filming February 28th. And in Philly, we were shut down uh, March 10th. So everything was, oh, this is great. And, you know, economy, everything was, was good. And we had no idea this was coming. And when I look at that kind of hard stop point, and now I look at how things have evolved and and how businesses have struggled. I think there's definitely going to be a little more grit to what we're looking at, um, which is also, I think, a little more Philly in in many aspects. Um, you know, we're we're the underdog, and that's you know we we have a lot of gumption and a lot of grit. So, I think getting to showcase that. Um, will be fun. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I heavily encourage people to check out Wolfpack season one and certainly will stay tuned for Wolfpack season two and excited to see what you guys do with that season as well. Courtney, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure.